1: Good evening. Welcome. Uh, It is Monday, April the 4th. You are listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson. Uh, Alongside this evening, Damien Sassauer. Um, European equity markets fairly well bid today, uh, a little fade into the close. But what is interesting today is you also had European bombs catching a bit, uh, which maybe signals actually lower rates, i.e. yields came lower today. Uh, and you also had energy prices higher. There's a whole load of things going on. But the focus of attention is firmly on where next for the sanctions story. Uh, we also need to talk about what is going on in China. Uh, they are testing 25 million people right now in Shanghai uh, to try and find out how many of them ultimately have coronavirus. We'll talk about all of this throughout the show. As I say, I'm alongside this evening, Damien Sassau, who is in New York. Damien, it is increasingly looking likely that energy sanctions are going to be applied to Russia. What are the implications of that?
2: Well guy I think really I mean <laughs> it, it's it's difficult to think of anything worse that can happen I mean in terms of what we've already done to Russia I mean outside of banning uh, oil and gas imports but you know it looks like we're uh, we're inventing all new nor- all new uh, sorts of ways to kind of get at them I mean certainly some of the things that Macron has discussed overnight certainly as you can see Germany just nationalized the Gazprom unit Windgas which is gas storage you know I think we're getting to the point here where seizures are in order I mean Russian Railways the uh, credit derivatives determination committee has been asked to rule if Russian railways uh, indeed triggered a default due to its failure to pay last week. So that's a very big story, something I'm going to be watching really closely here.
1: We'll come back. We'll talk more about this in just a moment. Um, Before we do that, let's get some headlines. Here with those, Charlie Pellett. Hi.
3: Thank you very much, Guy Johnson. Thank you very much indeed. Here's what's going on. Prime Minister Johnson this week will be hosting talks with leaders of Germany and Poland in an effort to firm up the NATO alliance and galvanize the response to the war in Ukraine. Johnson will meet Poland's President Duda and German Chancellor Olaf Scholz to discuss steps to contain Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Britain last week confirmed it has sent 6,000 missiles, 4,000 anti-tank weapons, and Starstreak anti-aircraft missiles to bolster Ukraine's defenses. The American president, Joe Biden, says Russian leader Vladimir Putin could face a war crimes trial. He's also vowing that Washington will impose additional sanctions against Russia. Travel bottlenecks that held up a pre-Easter exodus of thousands of British tourists at Dover over the weekend extended to rail services today after a goods train broke down in the Channel Tunnel. Several Eurostar international passenger expresses linking London with Paris and other continental cities suffered delays of up to an hour after the incident. And Elon Musk has taken a more than nine percent stake in Twitter to become the platform's biggest shareholder. A week after hinting he might shake up the social media industry, that is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London.
1: Thank you very much indeed, Charlie Pellet. Yeah, it's not been a great start to the Easter holidays, to be to be honest. Uh, lots of flights cancelled yesterday. Lots of flights cancelled today. Uh, you've got broken down trains in the Channel Tunnel. It's not going well particularly as it's absolutely arctic outside, which doesn't bode particularly well for the rest of the holidays. Let's hope things warm up. Um, let's get back to the conversation regarding what is happening with energy and warming up. Uh, we have seen a series of comments uh, from European leaders over the last 24 hours after images emerged uh, from the area around, Ukraine, around Kiev that has recently been liberated from Russian forces that show just horrendous horrendous scenes uh, having taken place. We're obviously watching what is what is happening with Mariupol as well. uh, And the reports from there are not good. So the expectation is that more and more pressure is going to be applied uh, to maybe bring energy into the sanctions mix. And that would certainly hit the Russian economy very hard. Damien, how hard people people talk about this as being the, the kind of the nuclear option. How hard would this hit the Russian economy?
2: Well, I mean, I think it's going to be very hard. But look, I mean, Russia has nine lives. I mean, the fact of the matter is, if you look at the reserve data, which came out last week, guy, I mean, $39 of reserves have been eradicated. Obviously, Russia's using those reserves to pay back its creditors, um, among other things, right, to keep the economy humming along. So, it's really difficult to say just how much is left in the kitty, right? I mean, from where I sit, look, you know, funding concerns are first and foremost. You've got capital exchange controls. You've got events of default. You've got questions around jurisdiction. I mean, think about it. If you're just Exiting Russia, if you're McDonald's or you're Pepsi or you're any big corporation, there are so many issues that you need to contend with regarding intellectual property, etc. And I think a, large, a lot of these issues are coming home to roost. And certainly, a lot of corporates that I speak to here in the U.S. are—it's just not the easiest way to kind of extract yourself out of the country at this point.
1: But if, but if you turn the energy, if you—we're t- paying the Russians a lot of money at the moment for energy. You remove that those payments, what happens?
2: Well, you would hope or you would think that the, uh, the that the country would have difficulty paying its bills and it would start to default on its debt. And I think that really- But a, a, that's already a, happening, isn't it? Uh, it hasn't happened yet, right? I mean, look, I mean, let's just talk about the $2 billion bond that Russia was supposed to pay back today. They actually managed to buy back three quarters of that note in rubles. Obviously, there were holders of that, that bond that were probably Russian and have use for those rubles, but many do not. The remaining $500 million, it seems like they're going to be able to make payment on that guy. What really uh, catches my attention, what you really have to focus on focus on is that May 25th carve-out uh, date, right? The U.S. government has basically said that U.S. creditors cannot accept coupon payments after that date. Whether or not they stretch that date further into the future remains to be seen. But right now, all investors are operating as if you're not going to be able to get paid back after the 25th of May.
1: Okay. So, so effectively, we're, what, what I'm trying to understand is what effect these are going to have. So if we're already in a position where where dollar payments are no longer going to be an option and but we're thinking about cutting off the what what are the dollars that are that we're sending
2: russia for gas payments being used for right now um, well, you would think it's being used to support their military. You would think it be it's being used to support their economy to some extent in terms of subsidies and what have you. But look, I mean, let's just take a step back. You know, this is very different than the 1970s. We talk about, you know, we're comparing, you know, the inflationary price shock of the 70s to where we are today. This time around, it's not just oil, it's food, Guy. We talked about this in the past. Yep. And so, you know, for me, you know, the deterioration to, you know, many markets, specifically those low-income countries, they're going to bear the brunt of the pain, in my opinion. I mean, let's just think about it this way. Right? Um, 80% of emerging market economies saw 5% food price inflation in the year heading up until the war. Now it's far, far higher, right? And total external debt as a percentage of exports, we talked about this last week, it's doubled over the past 10 years. So, all of this is coming home to roost. And, oh, hey, by the way, all the IMF debt service suspension initiatives expire. So, you know, what support is left for not just Russia, uh, but, but for any uh, emerging or developed market economy to kind of weather the storm? Remember, uh, nine out of the ten last U.S. recessions since World War II were preceded by rising oil prices. So there you have it.
1: And, and how is that food being paid for? And how, is, are these countries struggling to pay for the food that they want to export from
2: Russia? Well, not only struggling to pay, struggling to receive delivery, right? I mean, if you just look at, I mean, we've mentioned Turkey and Egypt in the past, right? I mean, those are the big consumers of grains out of uh, Ukraine and Russia. You know, there's just no supply there. You know, they just can't get their hands on the food they need. And remember, this is pre—you has know, preceded other kind of uh, conflicts in, in like the Arab Spring, just going back a few years ago. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. you know, these, these are all concerns. I mean, obviously, you know, for me, it's where does the money go? You got to follow the money. And it's very, very difficult to do at this point. If you just look again at what Gazprom, uh, you know, Germany National. This Gazprom unit today, it's very difficult to even know who owns that Gazprom unit because there was some funny business that went on back in March where Gazprom yep. shifted ownership to another entity. So, it's 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 well, just I think we the, know who owns it now. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, um, how many other assets are like that? I. Well, I mean you've got to assume that most uh, Russian corporates at this point yeah. are 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 an extension of the sovereign, you know, and we've looked at Venezuela as kind of a base case for that, I was about right? To say, so, yeah,
1: what's the what's the what's the benchmark? Here? Right. So Venezuela I mean, it looks like an obvious case.
2: Severstal, you know, Norlisk uh, you know, gas problem. Even Luck Oil. Luck oil has a huge uh, distribution effort here in the US on the oil side. You know, who knows who owns it in them?
1: Okay. Damien's gonna stick with us. We've got a good show ahead of us. This is Bloomberg.
2: This is
4: The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio.
1: Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. Leaders around the world, particularly in Europe and the United States, trying to figure out exactly what to do with the images that we saw coming out of Ukraine over the weekend. Um, the U.S. president landing at Fort McNair a little bit earlier on on Marine One, stepping out purposefully, walking to the cameras, making it very clear his line on this. Vladimir Putin is a war criminal and should be held responsible. He was asked what comes as a result of this. Further sanctions look like they are now inevitable from the United States, but what form will they take? Bloomberg's Amory Hordern joins us now. Amory, the president, unequivocal. Vladimir Putin is a war criminal. Now what?
4: Yeah, he repeats that. He said that a few weeks ago in Poland. He called him a butcher. Today he said what's going on is brutal. He said this guy is brutal. What's happening is outrageous, and everyone's seen it, and he should be held accountable. He said that there will be more sanctions, but that was it. didn't detail what those sanctions would be. Uh, The Washington Post was talking about the fact that the officials potentially are going to intensify some of the sanctions. There are sectors that they haven't gone after yet, notably mining, transportation, and also some in the financial sector, right? Because there are some banks, of course, that are continuing to do, to operate in terms of the trade for the European fossil fuel gas flow. So potentially these could be uh, avenues the U.S. would take, and then also, of course, a number of individuals
2: You know, Emery, we had two really interesting elections over the weekend, right? We had Hungary and Serbia, you know, and we had Prime Minister Viktor Orban in Hungary reelected to his fourth consecutive term. We know that he's, you know, kind of um, uh, allied himself in many ways, shapes and forms to Russia and to Vladimir Putin. And then Serbian President Aleksandr Vucic re-elected to five more years. I mean, what's the EU's response to this? Do they look at this as a setback or is this something that, um, that goes way deeper? I think they're
4: probably prepared for this. Um, and at the same time, they have been having to deal with these two individuals who do slant themselves uh, at many a times towards Moscow and we should note that President Vladimir Putin was one of the first world leaders to call them both and congratulate them. but I think you 're going to see as the weeks progress continuous divide uh, a continuous divide within Europe between Western Europe and Eastern Europe, and that really sh- that really is showing up already when it comes to going after the lifeline of the Russian economy, going after the fossil fuel sector in Russia. You know, Lithuania, yes, it's tiny, but they unilaterally came out and said, we're going to cut off the flows. Poland has asked the EU to do so. Latvia says they should do so. But what is it going to take to get Germany to that level? Uh, potentially, morally, they would like to be there, but economically yeah. and infrastructure-wise, they, they're just not there yet.
1: How much pressure is coming out of Washington, out of the White House, out of Congress for Germany to do more? Um, At the moment, clearly, there is serious concerns about the impact it would have were we to go down the energy route in terms of the economy. Deutsche Bank CEO making that very clear. A recession would be inevitable. Is there anything Washington can do at this point to help?
4: What they are talking about is sending more liquefied natural gas to Europe. And the president, Ursula von der Leyen, outlined this task force when he was in Brussels. The issue is that there was a lot of talk and noise in Washington and criticism of Germany when it came to Nord Stream 2. Olaf Scholz made a trip here, and a few days later, it was pretty much dead. Nord Stream 2 is now benched for the foreseeable future. After that, I think there's an understanding in the administration that they need to or want to aid Germany as much as they can. But they do understand that it's not a light switch. It cannot just be changed overnight. German individuals will lose heating, will lose the lighting in their homes. So I think there is an understanding, but I imagine a bit of frustration. But they are trying to give these countries other ways of obtaining liquefied natural gas. And you've seen them do it themselves. The German economy minister went to Doha to try to get deals. But Germany is just such a unique in a unique position because it doesn't even have the infrastructure to accept a ton of yep. liquefied natural gas. It doesn't even have any terminals. So that's basically yep. the baseline the US is working with.
1: Anne-Marie, great stuff. Thank you very much indeed. The Foreign Secretary, Liz Truss, uh, has been meeting with the Ukrainian Foreign Minister. They are now holding a press conference. Let's take a listen.
0: Evidence of rape and sexual violence, as well as the indiscriminate killing of civilians. We will ensure that the perpetrators are brought to justice for these barbaric crimes. And together with our allies, we will step up our efforts to stop Putin's appalling war. Three weeks ago, the UK led 41 states to refer these atrocities to the International Criminal Court. We're providing additional funding to the ICC. The UK military and police are providing technical assistance to the investigations. And the Metropolitan Police War Crimes Unit have commenced the collection of evidence. We're working very closely with the Ukrainian government on this. We've appointed former ICC judge Sir Howard Morrison, as an independent advisor to the Ukrainian Prosecutor General. And today I can announce that we're launching a £10 million civil society fund to support organisations in Ukraine, including those helping the victims of conflict-related sexual violence. We will not rest until these criminals have been brought to justice. We are clear that after these appalling crimes, Russia has no place on the Human Rights Council. And it is the responsibility of the UK and our allies, and that's what Dimitro and I have discussed today, to step up our support for our brave Ukrainian friends. That means more weapons and more sanctions. Putin must lose in Ukraine. Later this week, the G7 foreign ministers and the NATO foreign ministers will meet. We need to announce a tough new wave of sanctions. The reality is that money is still flowing from the West into Putin's war machine, and that has to stop. In Brussels, I will be working with our partners to go further, as has been advocated by Dimitro, in banning Russian ships from our ports, in cracking down on Russian banks, in going after new industries filling Putin's war chest like gold, and agreeing a clear timetable to eliminate our imports of Russian oil, gas, and coal. We also need even more weapons of the type the Ukrainians are asking for. The UK is supplying more, including next-generation light anti-tank weapons, javelin missiles, and Starstreak anti-aircraft systems. And last week, we hosted a donor conference with our allies to secure more. The fact is that being tough is the only approach that will work. Putin has escalated this war. And this approach is vital to ensuring he loses in Ukraine and that we see a full withdrawal of Russian troops and Ukraine's strength hand is strengthened at the negotiating table. There should be no talk of removing sanctions while Putin's troops are in Ukraine and the threat of Russian aggression looms over Europe. We need to see Putin withdraw his troops. We need to see Ukraine's full territorial integrity restored. We need to see Russians' ability for further aggression stopped. We need a plan to rebuild Ukraine. And we need justice done at the International Criminal Court. Dmitro, we salute your bravery and the bravery of the Ukrainian people. We are determined to help in whatever way we can. We will back you unwaveringly in your negotiations. And together, we will not rest until Putin fails and Ukraine prevails. Dimitra, I'd like to invite you to make a few comments.
5: Thank you. Uh, It's always a great pleasure to have uh, another meaningful conversation with Liz. Uh, I regret uh, we're not seeing each other in Kiev, uh, but I hope I will be able to host you in Kiev soon. Ukraine won the battle for Kiev, but the war goes on. We are preparing for the new large-scale offensive by Russia in eastern Ukraine. They will try to capture more territories in Donetsk and Lugansk regions. They will try to entrench and root themselves in the Kherson region. They will try to capture bleeding Mariupol. What you've seen, the horrors that we've seen in Bucha are just... uh, tip of the iceberg of all the crimes that have been committed by Russian army in the territory of Ukraine so far and I can tell you without an exaggeration but with great sorrow that the situation in Mariupol is much worse compared to what we've seen in Bucha and other cities towns and villages nearby Kyiv horrors of Bucha Mariupol and other places demand serious G7 and EU sanctions. I appreciate everything that has been done so far but Liz is right the West continues to fuel Russian war machine with payments for uh, fossil fuels with uh, trade that is still taking place between Russia and Western countries with uh, financial transactions conducted through Russian banks that have not been disconnected from SWIFT yet and when we discuss the sanctions that must be imposed on Russia without any delay actually uh, we have the same speaking points with Liz and I appreciate that we uh, the fact that Ukraine and the United Kingdom are aligned on this issue too half measures are not enough anymore I demand from from our partners, on behalf of the victims of Bucha and the people of Ukraine, to take the most severe sanctions against Russia this week. This is not the request of Ukraine's foreign minister. This is the plea of the victims of rape, torture and killings, their relatives and the entire Ukrainian nation. I have heard thousands of arguments why this or that sanction cannot be imposed against Russia. It's time to put all hesitation, reluctance, business-wise arguments aside and think about human sufferings and the need to stop the Russian war machine until it kills and destroys more on its way. I invite uh, foreign representatives, my colleagues, foreign those who still have doubts whether to disconnect Russian banks from SWIFT or to continue buying Russian gas, oil and coal or to receive Russian vessels in ports and process uh, products either sold to Russia or bought from Russia. I invite all of them to visit Bucha without any delay, to visit a small village and stand in front of the mass grave, to see the bodies of dead Ukrainian women who had been raped before being killed and whom the Russians tried to set on fire to hide the traces of their crimes. And I do this address to all foreign ministers who will be meeting this week at NATO at the European Union at the G7 ministerial if you have doubts reluctance or arguments about the need to uh, keep doing business with Russia go to butcher first and then talk to me Um, the same goes for uh, for weapons there have been some hesitations and reluctance to provide Ukraine with all weapons that uh, we are asking for. Uh, the same approach should be the, the same approach should be applied to the issue of weapons. The more weapons we have, the sooner we will be able to win this war and to prevent Russia from committing more crimes. I appreciate the United Kingdom's readiness to work closely with Ukraine on the investigation of the committed war crimes and to bringing perpetrators and their commanders to account. International justice takes time, but we will be focused on making sure that they they pay the price for what they have done to the people of Ukraine. After everything we've seen, I believe I would like to echo what Lee said and also demand the expulsion of Russia from the Human Rights Council. Ukraine has been raising this issue before. We now insist that this must be done immediately.
1: The Ukrainian Foreign Minister speaking alongside the UK Foreign Minister Liz Truss, uh, the two holding a press conference after they held talks in London. Damien, it sounds like we're heading towards energy sanctions. Is this – just just walk me through the ripple effects in 30 – actually, we're probably running out of time here, to be honest. Um, <laughs> talk about the, the, the ripple effects coming off this, because they, they feel really significant. And I don't yet fully understand how far they will reach and how big an impact they will ultimately have. But the CEO of Deutsche Bank said today, a, a, a recession in Germany would be inevitable. This is the largest economy in Europe with links to many global economies, including China. that would be that would be profound.
4: This is the cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele
0: on Bloomberg Radio.
1: Good evening, welcome. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson. This evening, side-by-side by by Bloomberg Intelligence's Damien Sassa. Equity markets closing in Europe uh, in the green. The FTSE 100 up by three-tenths of 1%. The CAC in Paris up by seven-tenths of 1%. The DAX in Germany up by around half of 1%. Technology really taking the lead stateside. This as Elon Musk builds a stake in Twitter. Uh, It's a passive stake at the moment. It's circa 9%. We're going to be joined by Ed Ludlow a little bit later on to talk about where this could go. But the Nasdaq currently up by 1.66%. Uh, the S&P up by six-tenths of 1%. Those are the equity markets. These are the headlines. Charlie Pellett. Hi, right thank you.
3: you very much, Guy Johnson. Here's what's going on. Germany is expelling 40 staff members at the Russian embassy in Berlin with suspected links to spy agencies as a first response to the killing of Ukrainian civilians. Foreign Minister Annalena Baerbock said in a statement that images of the victims show the unbelievable 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 brutality of the Russian leadership and those who follow its propaganda. The defense minister in Kyiv says it sees signs of Russia regrouping its troops to gain a tactical advantage in southern areas of Ukraine, storing fuel and organizing hospitals for an influx of wounded as it prepares for a new offensive. A yacht belonging to Russian billionaire Victor Vekselberg was confiscated in Spain at the request of American authorities, which said it was the first but definitely not the last asset seizure targeting individuals close to Vladimir Putin. The 78-meter-long ship called Tango is valued at about 75 million pounds. And finally, with natural gas prices in the UK soaring, one energy supplier is giving away free electric blankets to customers in an attempt to keep People warm. Octopus Energy Limited has been giving away the plug-in blankets to customers in financial hardship, according to the company's responses to messengers on its Twitter account over the past few days. That is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London.
1: Charlie Pellet, thank you very much indeed. So the Chinese in Shanghai are looking to test. I've started testing. Around 25 million people. This, as we see, outbreak after outbreak rippling across the country, and lockdown after lockdown, having a significant impact uh, on the economy. Um, it is a huge undertaking that is that is being uh, un- sort of rolled out here by the Chinese authorities. Uh, but trying to find a way out of the zero COVID policy does remain elusive. Um, Damien's over in New York. He is joined this evening there by the one and only Sam Fazeli, who has journeyed across the Atlantic and now finds himself in the Big Apple. Good evening, Sam. Um, Talk to me about the magnitude of what the Chinese are attempting here.
6: Good evening, Guy. I think, well, obviously, there's been nothing like it, um, at least over here in the West, in terms of that level of rollout of official tests. So this is something that... um, I have to say I take my hat off to the Chinese for the for their ability to do this kind of thing. And, and what we're also hopeful for is that once they've got a, one of these vaccines that um, gives a strong boost to uh, folks, they'd be able to do a phenomenal rollout just like they're doing with these tests. Hopefully it'll work out.
1: Damien, what effect is this having? Like, what is your read of the situation in Shanghai?
2: Well, I mean, we know it's, what effect it's having. I mean, the, the China PMI just went into contractionary territory. I mean, if you look at what um, what's going on in terms of tourism, I mean, China at one point accounted for 17% of the world's international tourism. That's pre-pandemic, and it's nowhere near that right now. So clearly, you know, these lockdowns and certainly the ones in Shanghai and Shenzhen are really having uh, a very large impact. You know, Sam, for me, my question is, you know, we see what's going on in, in China. We know that China just a per approved uh pfizer's drug we know that they've just i think um sent um uh they've approved two new mrna vaccines for 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 trials there you know is this the end of china's kind of homegrown um sort of soup that they've been cooking in order to kind of combat the virus are they going to now kind of pivot more toward some of the leaders we've seen in the space some of the people externally in terms of uh, combating the virus is that something we can expect going forward
6: well, I suggest that that is something that they should be doing, at least for vaccines, but it seems like that currently they want to keep running with the homebrew. These two mRNA vaccines that you refer to are both homemade. Now, there's nothing magic about what the European and the U.S. Um, companies did that China can't do. They have fantastic science. The point is, the, the, the crux of it comes down to this for me, Damien. We know exactly what to expect if you've had two shots of something, including Cronovac, and then you get a booster from an mRNA vaccine from either Pfizer-BioNTech or Moderna. We know what happens. We know its effectiveness in preventing disease. And no point carrying on and measuring antibodies, etc. They're not perfect surrogates for the effectiveness of these vaccines. So there is a risk that China does this. Get those vaccines approved in a few months' time, however long it takes to do the trials, which is a long time to wait while they play whack-a-mole with the tests, right? So why not just run with getting 100 million, 200 million shots of a BioNTech vaccine, which they've been looking at for six months in terms of their own approval process?
1: Demi, is that politically possible, do you think?
6: Oh, well, at this point, you know your guess
2: is as good as mine. You know, I would think yes, I would think yeah, absolutely, it would be uh, yeah. politically viable. But you know, it's it's anyone's guess. Look, I mean, China's going to stick with its zero COVID policy. In my mind, um, it's going to you know take it on the chin in terms of its growth and its inflation expectations going forward, at least for the end of this year. But certainly, some of the signals that we're seeing here it indicates a bit of a pivot, you know, and and, and a bit of a growing up, I think, on President Xi's part. So, you know, it's 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 anyone's guess at this stage. But uh, these are these are reasons to be optimistic in my mind, guy.
1: Sam, what about the new variants that we're starting to hear reports of? How concerning are they?
6: Yeah, but you know, um, the guy, variants aren't variants until they're really troublesome variants. And currently, there's no, I mean, the, the, as we've said before. Variants vir- of concern. Variants of concern, exactly. They are not designated as that. It takes some serious effort to, to make one like that. These are, this virus const- continuously mutates. There's, if you keep looking, you will find mutations here and there. The question is which one do we really need to worry about? Yes, a combination of BA1, BA2, which is slightly more transmissible than BA2. It is a problem for a country that's trying to limit infections. But until I see something that tells me you have high transmissibility and a risk of more virulent uh, virus, more severe disease. Uh, I'm not going to worry too much.
2: And so, I mean, Sam, last question for me is: I mean, we talked about these new sub but I mean, how do you com- really? How do you fight against this? I mean, is this going to be curbs? Is going to be more quarantines? I mean, like, how does? First of all, how do you measure it? First of all, and then secondly, how do you fight against it? Is it? Can we expect you know China to just take the same old look? We're just going to lock down in mass, massive cities, massive uh, swaths of land. Is that just really something that we can expect going forward?
6: Well, I think as they have proven, those kind of things work for a standard level of transmission up until Omicron. If we have variants and subvariants of Omicron that continue to have this level of transmission and... This level of percentage of people are asymptomatic, so they don't know whether they've got it or not. That's the problem. Um, And you can measure it. There's great science around that allows you to assess, as soon as a variant arises, within weeks, whether you need to really worry about it or not. Sam, um,
1: what else is going on elsewhere? So we're very much focused on on China at the moment, and we know that actually rates in Europe are relatively high. But just give us, are there any other areas of concern right now? What is like, what's going on in in South America? What's happening in sub-Saharan Africa? What's the the, the broader picture here? Yes,
6: yeah, so I think most of the world is that that has had some access to vaccines. Yeah, is is trying to 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 live with the virus. Everybody's trying to do that. We've vaccinated a whole lot of people. We've boosted a whole lot of people. Can we live with the virus and not break our healthcare system? That's what but, we we're experimenting is, in many places. But what's hap- South Africa has
1: always been an area of concern for me. We've got a huge HIV population, which means that the potential for variants emerging from there, as we've seen in the past, is, is significant. How, how, how vaccinated is the South African population now?
6: Yeah that's got a lot better in the past uh, few months since <clears throat> excuse me since the breakout of Omicron but I have to tell you guy that they have excellent science and excellent genomics proven by the fact of, of of how quickly they identified Omicron. But let's not forget, we talk about vaccinated areas. There's huge areas of, of Africa which are still not vaccinated. Yeah. We don't really know the, the the depth of the problem that they're facing.
1: And how much of a worry is that? Because as I say, I areas with high HIV populations have in the past been breeding grounds for variants.
6: Yeah, they have. But, but honestly, if you look at where variants have come from, and one we had, Alpha came out of the UK, right? That's, that's at least the current thinking. They don't necessarily go hand in hand with where there's high transmission. Because what you need is that one patient um, who has immune suppression, who has a virus that's essentially living in a training ground, for a year, six months, and testing out various mutations that created Omicron, that created Alpha. So that's where where you have issue. You know, we had huge amounts of transmission in the US. It didn't create a new variant that really took off and did anything. The, the, the issue is a lot less about that, in my view, than the problem with immunosuppressed people. You know Daniel, that, yeah.
1: Just, just, just to follow up on that, uh, and then maybe you jump in. Uh, w- the, the West has largely, largely recovered from from um, COVID. We, we're now much more firmly, firmly focused on what is happening in the war in Ukraine. The the, the fiscal response, the monetary response was, was absolutely enormous. Can the same be said elsewhere?
2: So that's interesting. You know, what we're seeing in emerging markets, you know they were the first to move. They were the first to move in terms of their central banks raising rates to fight inflation. But of late guy we've seen some very interesting changes we've seen what i like to call dovish policy hikes meaning the market is expecting some of these central banks to hike even more than they're actually delivering. This is the first time that's happened. We saw that last week with um, with Chile, we saw it with Colombia. You know, So, I mean, we've got Peru coming up this week, the markets are expecting 50 basis points. They may not get that. So, what that tells me is that these economies are hurting, because you know, obviously they've raised rates, they're choking off future growth, and now they're finally beginning to scale that back and sort of trying to wind that back a bit. And so, that's something that you have to keep an eye on, because if inflation remains hot, continues to rise at this pace, it's going to be very difficult for these economies.
1: Uh, and, sorry, you are going to jump in, actually, and ask Sam a question. So
2: oh, no, no, no. Uh, yeah, no, I was just going to ask Sam uh, what he's having for lunch today because I I never get to see him anymore uh, when, he's, when he's over here in New York. All,
1: all, all I can say is that if, if it involves lunch, it usually with Sam involves a nice bottle of red wine.
6: Uh, <laughs> I wish. I wish. No, 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 I can't. With jet lag, a bottle of red wine would be the end of me for the rest <laughs> of the day. No, my great friend and colleague, Oud Gerspacher, who runs the U.S. research team, is going to get me a salad. Mm. How was the flight? Just out of, a bit, out of
1: curiosity, because fl- this is something I, I haven't flown across the Atlantic yet since, since the outbreak. How, how was it? You came on Air France, you've still got to wear masks on Air France. I, I imagine you would wear one anyway, but how was the experience?
6: Yeah, you know what? Actually, after a while, you forget the mask is there. And I found a good trick of actually putting the elastic around my, ear, uh, my headphones so that I Isn't could that watch the idea? whatever Sorry, movie yeah. I wanted. But the only problem I had, which I think was psychological, was when I lay down to have a little sleep. It was tough to breathe and that was weird because I just did not expect that. You would expect when you lie down to have, you know, not that much breathing requirement because you're not awake. So, but anyway, that was that was a bit weird. I, I, I found that out.
1: It's gonna be interesting to see, alt- I, because basically what we've had is the recovery pretty much um, in terms of the ability to travel across the North Atlantic, but it doesn't exist to Asia yet. I, if that continu- I this is a genuine question, Damien. If that continues, Does that have a, would you expect that to have a meaningful impact in terms of? economic progress? Or do you think we've moved to the point where actually everything is so virtual now that you can conduct business? And if the routes are closed, you can still do what you need to do?
2: Well, you know, it's interesting, you know, I've been looking at a lot of, uh, you know, now that Russia's closed its airspace, and quite frankly, the West has closed its airspace to Russia. You know, you've heard about these uh, stories about a, a flight from Helsinki to Tokyo, it takes another three hours, right? Yeah, it has amazing. to fly over the North Pole. So I mean, certainly the economic impact or certainly the financial impact to these, uh, to, 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 to airlines and, and quite frankly, to anyone who's got to travel on them in order to do business or to travel just more generally speaking, it's going to have a pretty big impact, I think, economically speaking. But for me, you know, think about Russia. Russia's accounted for a large percentage of travel to places like Turkey, Cyprus, the Maldives, Egypt, you name it, even Thailand and Vietnam to some extent. And so, you know, for me, the question is, what is the impact that this war in Ukraine is going to have on tourism to those destinations you know and i think you know those destinations as we rightly know god they they rely on tourism that's a very big part of their economy of their economic input so yeah you know it's uh it's going to be painful i think
1: well if you need to get into to turkey uh sorry into russia you've basically at the moment got to go via the gulf or you've got to go via turkey um which tells you that you can still fly from russia out into, into Turkey, I- into the Gulf. And I have to say, I've got, I've got many friends that live in the Gulf and, and they continue to say that certainly there are significant numbers of Russian tourists. So that trade is certainly continuing. If we continue to see some of these alarming pictures emerging from, the, from, from around Kyiv, uh, and I suspect we're going to see them coming out of Mariupol, uh, I wonder how tenable that ultimately is. Uh, but uh, certainly cause for concern. Sam, enjoy the trip. I want to hear all about it when you get back. Uh, Sam Fazelli, joining us on the the latest out of China in terms of what is happening there uh, with coronavirus. Up next, Elon Musk taking a significant stake in Twitter. What does that mean? We'll talk next. This is Bloomberg. This
4: is The Cable with Guy Johnson
0: and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio.
1: Good evening. Welcome back. You are listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson, alongside Bloomberg's Damien Sasat. Uh, so Twitter uh, has seen its share price move sharply to the upside today. Let me just get you an updated number, just give you an idea uh, of what is going on. It's currently up by 28%. This is one of the biggest days since IPO. Uh, at one point, it was the biggest day, um, including the IPO. Uh this after Elon Musk confirmed in a regulatory filing that he has built up a circa 9% stake in this business. That classifies as a passive stake at the moment, but nobody I've spoken to today believes that ultimately this will end up being a passive stake. So what happens next? Let's find out. Let's bring in Bluebird's West Coast correspondent, Ed Ludlow. Ed, I, this is notionally at this point a passive stake What happens next? Have you spoken to anybody that believes that Elon Musk is going to be hands-off?
7: Yeah, I like that notionally a passive stake. I mean, we call it a passive stake because it was disclosed in a 13G filing. And I'm sorry that we had to get so quickly into the doldrums of SEC regulation, but you become eligible for a 13G filing through exemptions, right? So the exemptions are that the stake is more than 5%, but less than 20% of the company, and that there's no stated ambition to have... Uh, to exert any control over the company's operations. That's what makes a filer eligible for a 13G. It's worth pointing out that lots of investors initially file 13Gs and then have talks with management and they're forced to file a 13D, which is a filing that an activist investor would use. But the date of the filing is so crucial, right, Guy? It was March 14th. And what we know about Elon Musk's grievances for the Twitter platform and, and its use as a communication tool were tweeted by him on March 25th, March 26th um 11 days later so this when he made those comments he had already obtained the stake
2: so Ed, we know that Elon Musk is basically claiming that Twitter is failing to deliver on free speech right i mean i think that's right. what you're referring to there you know so my question is then what changes will he push for here i mean if he is indeed obviously going to take an active stake
7: you know, I think we we don't know. We take him on face value that he genuinely cares about freedom of speech. You know, he raised the question with his Twitter followers in that poll whether, you know, Twitter did a good job as a platform in protecting free speech. He kind of followed up to say that you know, he wanted to push for significant changes and he'd even consider his own social media platform, right? Um, But we don't know anything beyond that. You know, there's been no engagement from Twitter. It's not like he does the rounds of media interviews to explain his decision. He has tweeted so far this morning saying, oh, hi, lol. So, you know, like, what are you supposed to read into that?
1: In terms of what this means for the other businesses, he's got a space business, he's got a boring business, he's got a car company, goes by the name of tesla should we assume and tesla had its numbers out today in terms of deliveries is this a zero-sum game if if elon musk was to focus on this platform and he's pretty engaged with it you only got to look at what happened over the weekend this is something he clearly cares about is there any fear that that tesla would lose out tesla is executing pretty well right now but elon musk is is kind of having a big impact on that It's interesting. This Twitter stake is Elon Musk's only
7: uh, stake in a public company outside of Tesla, right? But he has ownership and leadership of a number of companies, including SpaceX, which occupies a large amount of his time. But there's also the Boring Company, the Tunnel Company, um, and also, you know, his brain implant company as well. And there's been this two points over the kind of history of covering Elon Musk, books written about it, lots of media reports. He's a micromanager, right? His job title is not just CEO of SpaceX and Tesla, but also chief engineer of those (laughs) products. And he has a reputation for sort of being very involved on the front lines of developing those products. And to date, he's been able to pull it off by living on a a jet plane going between Berlin and Shanghai and uh, Austin now, increasingly separate away from California. And there's no evidence on the performance of those businesses that they've been impacted or any fetters have come because of the multitude of roles that he
2: holds. You know, Ed, I mean, we know that Elon has a bit of a history with our friends down in Washington, D.C. You know, I'm curious, what do you think, uh, you know, Washington is thinking about all this? You know, I mean, certainly, you know, I, I have to believe some of the feathers are getting ruffled down there. I mean, wh- what are your thoughts there in terms of what the reaction from uh, from, from the U.S. government is going to be?
7: Yeah, there's two There's two. Sides to that relationship, right? There's a relationship with regulators. You know, Elon Musk's relationship with the SEC is tense, to say the least. They're involved in kind of a back and forth, not just over the existing 2018 agreement where Musk is supposed to have his tweets vetted by uh, a Twitter sitter or an in-house counsel, but just generally, you know, the SEC... You know as has been reported looking into some of the trades that he has probably made and then there's the administration you know and he's been critical of the administration kind of making jibes at biden about how he's so focused on gm and ford because of the union's relationship and not on tesla as kind of the market leader of evs um and he's quick to point out you know he tweeted at biden a number of times saying it's spelled t-e-s-l-a right it's spelled tesla on in response to kind of biden comments talking about gm and ford's progress on EVs to date. So it's fractious.
1: Um, But let's be honest, he he doesn't give a damn. Uh, No. In the past, other media owners have suffered. You've seen the impact on AWS um, during the previous administration when when, uh, The New York Times didn't do exactly what Donald Trump wanted. For them to say, uh, and I wonder whether there's a danger of replication here. But also, I, what does it mean for others? As like, we bring up Donald Trump, I, he he has a SPAC that is looking to do something very similar to Twitter at the moment. That share price is down pretty hard today. Is this an expectation that that Twitter is going to do better under Elon Musk? Yeah, I mean. Just going off the share reaction, you'd have to say so, right?
7: We're up 28%. The biggest jump since IPO in, in t- 2013 It's of course, not the first time we've been talking about Twitter in the context of an investor, a an activist, let's be honest, Elliot, an activist investor in the end of 2021. And ultimately what happened is Jack Dorsey stood down as CEO and Parag Agarwal took over as CEO, the former CTO. Um, And, you know, we keep calling this a passive stake, but Musk did tweet after taking the stake on March 14th that effectively he wanted to affect change on the Twitter platform. He's been critical of mainstream media, right? He's tweeted, I only follow certain journalists. He's not big fans of certain media outlets. He's critical of Jeff
1: Bezos's ownership of the Washington Post. So let's see what happens. Washington Post. Got that one around the wrong way. Ed, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much indeed. Twitter currently trading up by 28, nearly 29% on the back of this news. Hope you enjoyed the show with Damien and myself. This was The Cable. This is Bloomberg.